In this episode of Fictional Hangover, we talk about accidental decapitation, gently floating corpses, awkward sex talks, choosing a side, and everyone dying. In our discussion of Rebel Rising by Beth Revis. everybody, welcome to Fictional Hangover, a podcast about young adult and new adult books, series, authors, and voice actors that is full of spoilers. I'm Amanda. And I'm Claire, and today we're going to discuss Rebel Rising by Beth Revis. Standard disclaimer, if you haven't read this book, please remember that Fictional Hangover is all about spoilers. If you haven't read or listened and don't want to be spoiled, stop listening to us and go read or listen to the book, then come back. If you haven't done this but want to pretend that you have, or if you don't care about spoilers, or if you just like to show so much that you don't care about any of that, then listen up. If you've watched Rogue One, is that a spoiler? Uh, yes. Yes, because you know what happens at the end. True. If you haven't seen Rogue One, a Star Wars story... You need to go and watch Rogue One right now. It's one of my favourites. I watched it last night. Did you? I did. I had to. I had to. Knowing that we're going to cover Rebel Rising, and it's been a little while since I've watched... Rogue One. I decided, screw it, I'm going to watch all the movies in chronological order. Nice. And I just so happen to be up to Rogue One. That's perfect. It's perfect timing. Um, We watched a Nicolas Cage movie last night called Willy's Wonderland. Slight <laughs> <laughs> difference. It was really good, though. <laughs> you know, in a terrible way. Oh, that, that, that describes majority of Nick Cage's movies. Yes. The best part about it, though, is that Nicolas Cage did not say one word in the entire movie. No. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this. It was it was good fun. I'm going to have to watch that. That's amazing. Yeah. It was to be fair, was it improved by the fact that Nicolas Cage didn't speak? No. It would have been better if he had a few like cheesy one-liners. Put the banner back in the box. <laughs> so anyway, that's what we watched last night. <laughs> Semi-appropriate, I suppose. We'll go with it. Fine. It's really, it's really, really fine. Nicholas Cage movies are always appropriate. Yes, they are. Do we have actual background information for what we're talking about, though? Yes, we have two bits of background information. One I think that you should share, and the other is what I will share. Because you were like, hey, Amanda, what if we did this for background info? I'm like, yeah, okay. And so I added it in. Oh, thanks. I know. It's well, like I like you and listen to what you say or something. Uh, it's from a book called Star Wars, Women of the Galaxy by Amy Ratcliffe, which is behind me. Um, and it's talking about why Jin Ursa was used as a character. And she is extraordinary, but the fact that Jin is a hero isn't a princess or force user makes her more accessible, which I like. Yes, me too. And the late producer, Alison Yashima, understood Jin's qualities, and quote. What I love so much about Jin Erso is that she's an imperfect female warrior, authentic and genuine, truthful and humble, strong and modern without feeling contemporary. Oftentimes, Hollywood wants to see a strong woman apologise for not appreciating her life or dedicate herself to figure out why she's a certain way. What I love about Jane is that hers isn't a story of wishing she'd made other life choices. This isn't an apology. And I like that. Women should not have to apologise, but I think I'm sorry is 
always on the tip of our tongue. Yeah, I think you're right. I try really hard not to say it. (laughs) The more I've been learning about the character of Jin Ursul through reading Rebel Rising, the more I appreciate her as a character as well. Yeah. What information did you garner? I gathered some information from Beth Revis in an interview on porthaven.com. She was talking about fandoms, which we were talking about fandoms when we read Ahsoka, and then you and I have been talking about it just between the two of us. So I thought it was interesting that we found this information. So this is what she has to say about fandoms. To me, apathy is one of the worst traits a human can have, and passion is one of the best. Fandom is a place of passion. People don't just like a story or character. They love it, and they want to share their love. They're excited about it. Fandom is a place of vivacious passion, and it's beautiful for it. Oh, yes. That captures it very well. It does. Do you have initial thoughts? <laughs> um, Star Wars aside, I was so excited to read another Beth Revis, because she knows her sci-fi. Yes. She does good sci-fi. Yes, she does. And the fact it was a Star Wars book, and it's Jin's story is just, you know, it sweetens the deal. Yes. Everything about it is great because we love Beth Revis. My favorite part about this being a Beth Revis book is that, you know, we read her short story a long, long time ago for our our first live episode. We talked about The Girl in the Machine. And then I was like, man, I really want to talk about her books because I really, really like them. And you hadn't read them. So then a million years later, we worked them into the schedule and Beth Revis joined us and it was a lot of fun. And now, like... You know, we're doing it again. We're talking about another Beth Revis book, and it's great because she's wonderful in all ways. Yes. She's such a nerd she on really social is. media as well. It's just she delightful. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah, she really, really is. So I really i am excited about the fact that she wrote this book because we love her as an author. But also, I love Jen, so it just makes it even better. Yes. Because it's yes. two things that I like. Yes. Smushed into one, and I love it. cool shall we dig into it then we shall and gosh I'm gonna butcher Star Wars names again sorry should we we preempt this to say I haven't listened to the audiobook so I'll be butchering it my own way as well but I just butcher words anyway that's fine yeah yeah that's fine and I did listen to the audiobook as I am wont to do and it also had all of the great you know sound effects and stuff so it was another Cinema in your ears it was another fun one to listen to cool okay we start out on the Imperial Detention Center and Labor Camp LEG 817 location Wobani prisoner Liana Holly number 6295A month 01 A handcuffed Jen Urso is being forced down a long corridor to her cell. Her crimes, though not the worst the Empire has ever seen, have landed her on Wobani, a prisoner planet whose reputation she is well aware of. The warden takes great joy in mocking Jen and reminding her of the hard labor ahead. These will be the worst days of your life, he tells her. Jen begins to laugh in his face. You know me. <laughs> you know me. Jin Ursel, age eight. Tiny baby Jin, Jin Ursel. 
little baby Jin. She was so cute. Jin hid in the darkness after her mama was killed at point-blank range by a man in white. Jin didn't know how long she had been waiting in the dark for her papa to fetch her, but she still held out hope her mama would come too. When the hatch door opened, it was neither of her parents, but Saw Gorara, a family friend who helped them relocate to Lamu from Coruscant. Helping her out, Saw takes Jin home, only to find it had been ransacked by the troopers looking for Papa's work. But they deleted everything, and all that was left was her Papa's head. That's not right. It wasn't a Papa's head. It was in her Papa's head. It was in it. <sighs> I, I'm completely missed a which no. is totally it is so much more <laughs> it's so much better than just yeah, her but... father's head sitting there Can we have... that's not what happened Claire can't no. read <laughs> what a fun mistake that was I'm really enjoying that mistake <laughs> I'm going down that route Whoops. wow no, accidental I'm this decapitation <laughs> Oh, I'm just going to write that on the top. Um, but they, de- <laughs> they deleted everything. But they didn't delete a via decapitation. No, no. He just retained it in his head. With nothing left of her home, Jin leaves with Saw, her home burning as she walks away. Saw tanks Jin aboard his ship and carefully maneuvers around the Star Destroyer in orbit before going into hyperspace. Galen will be on that Star Destroyer. He was working on something... But there are no records, and Jen doesn't know anything, only that it was to do with kyber crystals. When they emerge from hyperspace, it is to Smuggler's Run, and a small, watery planet nestled inside an asteroid belt called Rhea. Saw lands on a small island that hasn't seen inhabitants for a while, going by the condition of the comms tower. Not since the Clone Wars, Saw tells Jen before guiding her inside the blast doors of the base. The base is much bigger than its outside appearance as it's built down into the rock. It's empty other than old junk. Saw places a mattress, blanket and pillow on the ground for Jin, feeds her nutritive milk and leaves her. The next day, Jin wakes hungry and goes in search for food. Finding a can of nutritive milk, she drinks it as the weight of her situation deepens and she panics that Saw has left her. Imagine thinking you're being left by yourself at eight again. I know, it's terrible. Searching the base, Jin finds him outside, practising his shooting at some inactive droids. Jin realises why her mama contacted So. It wasn't solely because he was a family friend, it was because he can fight. Jin makes her presence known and asks So to teach her. He does, but he can only teach her so much. When Jin asks for other lessons like her mother gave, math, history and science... So hands her an old data pad and tells Jin she needs to teach herself. Later, alone in her room, Jin takes out the crystal necklace her mother gave her and tries to trust the force and reach for it. Nothing happens. Mm. Mm. One day, Jin comes out to practice, and instead of droids, Saw has hung stormtrooper armor from the broken comms tower. He instructs her to keep her blaster on kill, and also to use melee weapons. Jen practices until her hands go numb. Jen also finds out that the bunks in the base do get used as people pour in bringing groceries. Hey, yay, groceries! (laughs) (laughs) Which makes a wonderful change to the nutritive milk. 
Amongst the group is Zosad, a Twi'lek from the good old days, with two more Twi'leks, and Togruta, Reese Talent, a human with a similar accent to Saw, and Idrissa, the most beautiful woman Jen has ever seen. Look, I had a non-sexual crush on Idrissa when she was introduced, because she is glittery and beautiful. She was blue at first. I know! luminescent blue yes and then she changes colors later on which is you know a dream yes yes she's just she sounds gorgeous adrissa brings her clothes that fit yay Yay. and talks to her of women's health and hygiene (sighs) imagine having that conversation with (laughs) (laughs) oh man oh man (laughs) Oh, no. no. Nope. <laughs> wow. That must be like that would be the most awkward of conversations ever to have ever been awkwardly conversated. Mm. Okay. One day they are speculating about the crystals Galen was so interested in, how they were so valued by the Jedi. They also question how much Galen is working under duress. Jin insists he was taken. Her papa didn't want to leave her. As Jin is playing with a cord replicator and doing a sound job of forgery, news comes in about Galen. Saw takes Jin to her room with the promise to tell her all later. No one should know she is Galen Ursaw's daughter and she would give herself away. Later, Saw tells her the reports all confirm Galen has declared he has chosen a side, and though Galen does explicitly say it is the Empire, his current situation working on Coruscant, his friendship with Orson Carrick, a man, the man who killed his wife, it would reliably suggest it is the Empire. Carrick. Years pass, and Jin, now 14, has not shed another tear for her father who left her. Saw keeps training her and begins to use Jin to listen and judge the people who come and go from the base. Jin has also excelled at forgery, and Saw is very proud. After a long absence, Idrissa returns to the base, and Saw includes Jin in their discussion. It turns out, Saw and Idrissa have fundamental ideological differences. Idrissa wants to form an alliance with those in the Senate who oppose the Empire, and she doesn't want innocents to be hurt in the fight. Saw believes the war has never ended, for fear controls the masses, and the Empire controls fear. They need to tap into that. Jin has hand-to-hand combat training the next day, using her favourite weapons, a pair of truncheons that are strong and empowering. As she fights Saw using his bow staff, Jin asks what it would take for an organised rebellion to take down the Empire. Saw tells her it needs to be a martyr, like his sister, Steeler, who was killed during the Clone Wars and inspired him to fight. To rally the resistance, a leader needs to be standing on some graves. <sighs> that was a really powerful scene. It really was. Spending time with Idrissa spurs Saw into reconnecting with other past compatriots. Zosad and his crew, then Reese, arrive at the base. Jen finds Reese's company insufferable. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. To the point they end up throwing down outside. Reese, all cocky, thinking he's a big strong man, man, who can beat up a little girl, doesn't bargain on Jen being fast and wily. Eventually, though, Reese does knock Jen down, and 
spots her kyber crystal necklace her mother gave to her. This makes Reese mad, because Saw has them chasing across the galaxy for crystals, and there is one literally under Jen's nose. After his rant, <laughs> Jen hits Reese over the head with a rock. <laughs> Yay! Oh, Yay! <laughs> Later that evening, Reese leaves. And we all cheer again. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Saw suggests she cover her neckline in the future because no one can know who her father is. Then he invites Jen to a planning meeting with Zosad and his crew. Before the meeting starts, the group shares a meal. As they sit, Zosad pointedly asks if Jin is who he thinks she is, but Saw tells him to drop it. The mission is to intercept, board, and take the information the Empire has accumulated from scouting missions in the Western Reaches. Jin, who will be coming along for the first time, will create the forged documents to gain access. Yeah, they're leaving right now as well. Let's go. Son of a bitch. (laughs) The mission goes mostly as planned. The documents Jen fabricates work perfectly, and they intercept and board the ship and take out anyone in their way. Jen is left behind to make sure no one gets aboard Zosad's ship, but one slimy, cocky scientist tries to sweet-talk Jen into letting him escape. Jen hesitates to shoot him, though it's obvious he's going for a hidden blaster in his pocket and won't have the same reluctance to get her out of his way. Jer, one of Zosad's crew, actually shoots the scientist, but Saw thinks that it was Jen. In hyperspace, on the way back to base, Saw tells her he's proud of her, and this is pretty much a first. Don't say anything about it, it's fine. Imperial Detention Center and Labor Camp, LEG 817, month 02. Jin has no sense of time on Wobani, a hellish place, searing heat, freezing cold, dark, dank and cramped. In her time, Jin also gains a cellmate, a statuesque Lennox called Zohad. They are given very little food to survive on and are forced to do hard or monotonous work. The prime work detail is the farm, though it's still hard work, they get some fresh air. Today, Jin is assigned to work in the factories, specifically cutting panels. As she uses the accelerated particle cutter, a panel shatters, which is definitely not right. Production is halted, and while engineers talk about the problem, Jin kneels on the shards, arms raised like the other prisoners. When Jin stands, she finds a slither almost purposely designed to be a knife, and and Saw's words go through her mind. One fighter with a sharp stake. Tempted to palm it, Jin drops it to the floor when a stormtrooper confronts her and accuses her of having an unsanctioned weapon. After three hours in the warden's office, Jin is dumped bloody and beaten back in her cell. Mm. I don't know how I feel about these prison scenes. (sighs) Rhea becomes more crowded as different groups come and go, all of them seemingly trying to impress Saw, believing in him rather than the cause. On the plus side, the newcomers like Kodo, Maya, and Staven add to Jen's education. Saw would also go on more missions, on one occasion coming back with a limp. 
When Jen challenged Saw about going on missions of her own, he proved that she wasn't ready by showing her that her mistakes could cost the lives of others. Shortly after, Saw does send her on a mission as a sort of way of honoring her 15th birthday. The target is Doran Bell. He's been working with kyber crystals and is currently on a dark planet. Jen will act as the insurance policy. Saw hands her a sniper blaster. Jin sits and waits for hours, repeating, I can do this. Eventually, Doran Bell walks into her scope's view, but she doesn't pull the trigger. By the time she has persuaded herself to do it, the traps laid for the Imperials go off and Jin spots Doran's broken body. From this point, Jin never knows if Saul will send her to train or go on a mission within the Outer Rim, an area the Empire was showing increasing interest in. Surprisingly, Saw tells her she will be joining a mission to a wealthy planet in the Mid-Rim. They are being contracted to carry this out by Arian Arida, who notoriously hates humans, until they are useful. Mm. And it's a good thing she pays well. Jin will forge the invitations to an annual Blossom Festival, which will be also celebrating the installation of an Imperial Governor. Additionally, Jin will accompany them to Insugwai, and distribute the invites to other members who approach her and use the code word cloud. She is not to enter the festival building. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen. Jen is disguised in traditional robes with floral designs and wanders the festival grounds. Inusagi is a beautiful, lush planet and Jen is enjoying people watching. She doesn't enjoy the blatant racism directed toward the Rayeths native non-humans of Inusagi. Jen passes out all the forged invitations with spares, and despite Saw's instruction not to go into the festival grounds, oh, she does. No one is shocked. What Jen sees is a show of power and prestige as Inusagi is forced under imperial rule in a hollow celebration. Jen also sees... In the shadows, ten figures carrying FC-1 flanchette launchers with razor-sharp blades designed for crowd penetration. Sounds really, really great. Jen retreats back to the ship, blood and bodies behind her, but not before Saw sees her. When Saw returns, he reminds Jen what war is. Mmm. Mmm. A few days after the Inusagi mission, Saw announces that there is a traitor amongst the partisans and promises to find out who it is. Saw also takes a more active role in the training of new recruits, including Reese. He has returned after most of his crew left to join up with Saw. Though he's lost some of his cockiness and is one of Saw's most staunch supporters, he's still a jerk. He's the worst. One day, Saw gathers Jin, Reese, and Jari for a small mission where they journey to Smuggler's Run. When they land, Saw fires a blast into Jari's shoulder and instructs Reese to tie, gag, and blindfold him. Saw whispers to Jin, He knows. While Reese loads Jari onto an airspeeder, which Saw takes to a nearby Imperial barrack, kicking Jari to the ground. Mm. Not good. No, it's not good. It's not good at all. Saw changes after this, becoming more mission-focused. 
turning the lounge at the base into a command center and telling Jen they know. When Idrissa visits, she is surprised how busy the base has become and tries to convince Saw to accept her methods of resistance. She's disappointed in his part on Inusagi Yawi Alwa. Idrissa also has a mission for them. It's information retrieval on Tamsi Prime, an Imperial-controlled mining planet whose production for Star Destroyers has seen a marked increase. The plan is, thanks to Reese's contacts on Coruscant, for Saw, Jen, Kodo, and Reese to pose as a crew from the propaganda department filming on Tamsi Prime, with the feed being sent straight to Idrissa. At first, everything seems to go well. Lieutenant Colonel Senjax takes the time to introduce himself to Saw and Jin and takes them on a tour of Tamzai Prime. After walking through the facilities, Senjax turns to Reese and checks that Saw is the anarchist he alerted him of. No! Reese is a traitor! No! I am so surprised this asshole is actually a bad guy. You spend the entire book waiting for this moment because you know he's a jerk. His reasoning, and I use this term loosely, is that Saw took his men, so Reese will take his. Reese also tells Senjax there is something important about Jin, but he's not sure what. Saw won't be arrested without a fight and knocks Reese down, and all hell breaks loose as TIE fighters zoom in and start blowing up the facility. Senjax mocks them, telling Saw that the factory is being decommissioned and that he's willing to destroy it if it will destroy Saw. Jin contacts Kodor on the ship to come get them while plasma cannon blasts rain down. Saw is hurt during the chaos as, his sh- as he shields Jin. Kodor manages to land the ship and Saw tells Jin to go and hide as he drags Reese aboard. No matter how much she begs, Saw doesn't promise that he'll come back for her. Once again, Jin is left hiding in a dark bunker. <laughs> Made it. Imperial Detention Center and Labor Camp, LEG 817, month 03. Life is repetitive on Wobani. Eat, work, sleep, eat, work, sleep, eat, work, sleep. Zarada, Jin's cellmate, becomes increasingly depressed. A visit from an admiral causes a stir when he shoots an inmate at point-blank range to demonstrate that fear is a greater motivator for hard work than any reward could ever be. (sighs) Jin is alone. Saw is gone. She has a knife and a blaster and a safe for the moment. Jin was sure Saw would come back for her, but then... The attack starts and the factory is decimated around her. Jin realises that Saw is not coming for her. Leaving the relative safety of the bunker, Jin heads to the spaceport and finds Reese's ship. Thankfully, her belongings are still in her locker and she now has fresh clothes, truncheons and her code replicator. But she doesn't know how to fly. Spotting someone who looks equally as desperate to leave, Jin calls him over and he flies them off planet and away. They emerge from hyperspace on a small planet. Jen and the pilot don't talk. He's too shrouded in guilt. Selling the ship to junkers, they go their separate ways. Jen lies about her mechanical experience to get a job on a freighter called Ponta One. 
The pilot, Akshaya, is willing to give her a chance if Jen can fix her droid and leave her weapons behind. Jen can't fix the droid. (laughs) And it's convinced that no one can. However, an Imperial checkpoint saves Jen as she is able to save Akshaya from an inspection and heavy fines by forging proper codes. This is more valuable to Akshaya than the droid ever was or could be. That poor droid. <laughs> it is, it's not R2-D2, so it's fine. Sure, it's fine. fine. Akshaya invites Jin to stay with her and her son Hada on the planet school and to celebrate their new house guest instead of eating bun, a local quote-unquote delicacy, they go to the diner in town. Jin is impressed with the diversity of the people there. Less so with the food, but you know, she cannot be picky. On an old view screen, reports of the attack on Tamzai Prime are playing. And of course, the lie being perpetrated by the Imperial puppet Senjax is that the terrorists are to blame. When Jin tries to set the record straight to Akshaya, she gathers Jin and Hada as they head home, reassuring them the Empire doesn't reach this far. They are safe. Jen understands the threat of the Empire is ever-present, though they may not be occupying school at the moment. She also wonders if Saw is looking for her, but like Galen, he left her behind and she isn't interested in reconnecting. Jen is given Akshaya's daughter's old room. Hatter explains his sister, Tanith, died a long time ago after a drug addiction exacted a terrible toll. She was taking an addictive medication to counter the blood burn she experienced from space travel. It's caused Akshaya to be extra wary of Hatter flying, though it's his dream to be a pilot. No matter how much Hatter asks, Jen doesn't tell him her whole story, just the salient parts. Dead parents and abandoned by her surrogate. (laughs) Hatter thinks... Is that not enough? (laughs) That's all you need to know. That's really... That's it. You don't need to know anymore. Hatter thinks she's weird. When Akshaya is off-planet making deliveries or at the refinery, Jen and Hatter start taking the planet hopper out for joyrides. Hatter clearly loves being behind the controls, and it's only at Jen's urging that he takes them off-planet. <gasps> Don't tell his mother, though. No. No. That evening, Jin and Hatter celebrate their jaunt into space with a meal at the diner. Unfortunately, Jin spots Burke, who works with Saw and was on the Inasagi mission. Burke catches up with Jin as they head back home, and Jin beats him up a little. It's reasonable. Burke shouldn't have been caught, but he does deliver a message. Saw isn't coming. He only wanted to make sure Jin was still alive. Hada, who witnessed the exchange, now understands Jin has skills and learns of her time with the resistance in her old life. As time goes on, Jin starts to let herself forget, but Akshaya can also sense her tenseness and reminds Jin they are ants and the Empire is far away. It's not. One day, Hatter takes Jen for a picnic across the planet. 
he tells her he's thinking of joining the resistance to finally become a pilot, and he wants her to come with him. Jen admits that she won't. She can't go back to that life. Hatter tells her, in that case, he won't go either. They start to kiss and eventually do more. Sweet baby Hatter. I know. So sweet and precious. When they return home, they find Akshaya has returned early. She tells them the Empire owns more than half of the mines she contracts with. She still doesn't believe the Empire will bother them on school, stating the refinery owner is refusing to sell. Jin knows better. Hada, watching the exchange, leaves to have dinner at the diner and Jin follows him a little while later. She finds Hada talking to Zorsad, the recruiter Hada mentioned on their picnic. However, Zorsad isn't working for Saw anymore, but Idrissa. Jin politely asks Zorsad to leave by squeezing the soft flesh of his leku. That sounds it's very sensitive. It sounds really inappropriate. It really does. <laughs> I think the the worst part is the soft flesh. Squeezing soft flesh. Soft flesh of his lucky lucky. <laughs> Twelve on the inside. Twelve on the inside. Twelve on the inside. <laughs> Eventually, the stormtroopers come. They always do. Akshaya and the other workers are planning a meeting to discuss what they can do. Jen tries to tell Akshaya it's hopeless, but she won't listen because they are ants. Hatter takes Jen out in the planet hopper to avoid the useless discussion. While they're in the air, Hatter tells Jen that Zosad hasn't left and he has friends who can help them. When they return, the troopers are waiting to ground the hopper. Hatter doesn't understand why Jen doesn't fight back when she has the power to do so. The refinery owner is gone, as are other key workers. And now the refinery is under imperial control. We are not shocked. No. Akshaya's words are hollow as she protests that they aren't gone. They're just not here. Mm. Jin starts to make plans for them to leave tomorrow. Akshaya and Hada will take the freighter and Jin will fly the hopper. Unfortunately, the stormtroopers come that night. They have received word Akshaya may be harbouring a person of interest to the Empire. Jin hears the ruckus and manages to slip out of the small window in her room and make it to the hopper. Under blaster fire and the threat of a walker, Jin is able to take off and sees Akshaya and Hada heading to the freighter to take off too. Just as the open communication between the ships, the TIE fighters arrive. Jin tries to run interference for the freighter to break the atmosphere and enter hyperspace, but the hopper isn't very manoeuvrable. Suddenly, Y-wings enter the fray. Zorsad must have sent them. The dogfight between TIE fighters and Y-wings provides Jin with the opening she needs. Screaming into the mic to Ponta One, Jin confirms they are still with her. Before escaping, a plasma blast passes too close for comfort, exploding something behind her. The force of the explosion 
pushes her into hyperspace. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Imperial Detention Center and Labor Camp, LEG 817, month 04. Zerata has fallen deeper into her depression. She asks Jen how to know when to give up. Jen has no answer. They are both assigned to the same work detail in the craggy canyons west of the prison. Without safety rigging, they are both sent down the canyon wall. Jen finishes her task, whereas Zerada lingers. Jen is back at the top of the canyon when a stormtrooper starts shouting at Zerada to get back to work and aims their blaster at her. Zerada looks up to the sky before raising the laser pick to her eye and depressing the trigger. Zerada lies lifeless and bloody between the stones. The trooper sends Jen down to collect the equipment and finish the work. Ugh. That was tragic. When the planet hopper emerges from hyperspace, the comm link to Ponta One picks up Orny's static. Jin docks at the agreed-upon rendezvous point, the space station at the centre of the Five Points system, but they have no record of the freighter. Jin gives her name as Tanith Ponta to the docking agent and sells the hopper to them for scrap. She also asks to be notified when Ponta One lands. As she inspects the outside, Jin finds a twisted steel panel curled into the hopper. On it is painted one. The explosion that pushed her into hyperspace and to safety was Ponta One blowing up. She walks away feeling empty inside. Oh my gosh. The Five Points space station is a hive of activity. With limited funds from the sale of the hopper, Jen needs to get food, somewhere to stay, and work. Some guys try to beat her up, but she shows them the error of their ways, and though she loses her knife in the scuffle, she gains a blaster. Picking up some basic nutrient straws and milk, Jen's next purchase is a pair of extendable truncheons, weapons she can use really effectively, then a bed <laughs> in a cheap inn. The next morning, there is a message for Tanith Ponta to report to main processing flashing across the holonet. Could Akshaya and Hatter be alive? No. No. <sighs> Imperial Commander Solange actually wants to speak to Tanith slash Jin, same person, about the forged permissions and identification codes for Ponta too. Solange wants the person responsible for such excellent work to forge credits for Saw's Palace, one of the gambling halls on the station. It seems the commander has gotten herself into a spot of debt that will be embarrassing for one's career prospects. For 1,000 Imperial credits and her name cleared, Jin will do it. Jin completes the work on time and is paid but told not to leave the station. Jin rents a room and starts to build a routine, hanging out in the park and at a cantina listening for the right opportunity to help her leave five points for good. During this time, she hears whispers of the rebels. This pisses Jin off. She blames the Empire and the rebels for Akshaya and Hada's deaths. That night, Jin is distracted on her way back to her room and doesn't see the blow coming that knocks her out. Jen wakes to see the feathered visage of Alejandro So, 
owner of So's Palace Gambling Hall. He is impressed with Jen's work on the forged credits, but can't let Commander Solange and Jen go unpunished. So offers Jen an exchange. She will escort some product to Rumataka in exchange for her life. Jen agrees if he'll throw in 1,000 Imperial credits as well. Within an hour, Jen boards the freighter. The captain and crew of the freighter are jerks. One hands Jen a manifest list with 20 names on it. They are indentured servitude records, and Jen's job is to extend the service years and assign them to the Empire. So has sold their contracts rather than freeing them. Jen memorizes every single one of their names. During the week-long journey, Jin finds out that the crew are starving the people down in the hold. When she goes to see them, the smell hits her mm. first. The floor is covered with their waste. There are seven tiny cells, each with two or three people in, and a water bucket. The slaves are women and their children. One of the crew takes great joy at showing Jin his stun prod to give them a buzz. Mm. Disgusting. Mm. Disgusting. That night, Jin starts cooking dinner for the crew, so it doesn't appear strange when she prepares a big celebratory feast on their last night together. While the captain and the crew took in, Jin pulls out the stun prod and knocks them all out before dragging them into the airlock. Going down to the hold, Jin frees the slaves, hands them the unaltered servitude record which will free them and leaves the ship with the escape shuttle. As she flies off, the bodies of the captain and the crew drift out into space did you get like the hugest across the universe vibes from this from this moment in time yes the bodies were stars in the sky yes they were it was beautiful just look out the window and there's a million bodies all over the place because they're not moving in space they're just they're not moving and they're not decomposing (laughs) gosh we laughed about that so much it's terrible (laughs) Oh look, Call it's back. a beautiful stars. Oh god, there's a corpse. It's not the same. Why does the here. star wear pants? It's not it's got an insignia. Stars aren't supposed to have insignias. No. no. This is not the same though. This This freighter is still moving. Yes. It's not just gentle floating of corpses. <laughs> gentle floating of corpses. <laughs> Oh, that's a phrase. (laughs) Jin lands on Rumitaka and sells the shuttle to a junker before heading straight to the spaceport and off-planet to the first interplanetary transport. Jen adopts the identity of Liana Halleck as she planet hops and takes whatever job pays, and time and distance begin to blend together. Years later, Jen finds herself back in the outer rim and looking for work. The junker she sold the escape shuttle to sets her up with a job. One night in the boarding house Jen has rented a room in, stormtroopers come in looking for Tanith Ponta. They take her back to Five Point Station and Commander Solange, who has been joined by Admiral Rockwin. (sighs) The Empire has another job for her in exchange for not torturing her and her freedom. Jen is to upload a tracking code to a known partisan vessel, which the Imperials will be able to use to track back to the partisan base. 
There is nothing suspicious about the routes or cargo the partisans are delivering. They're acting as a relief effort, providing food and medicine to settlements the Empire is oppressing. Jin's relationship with Captain Blue and her non-human crew is good, mostly, but Berta doesn't trust humans. Blue likes Jin and is very happy with her forgery work. Jin tries to warn Blue that she has planted an imperial cord, but she's just like way too subtle. Mm. Like, mm. The day before they are finally set to return to the partisan base, the imperial checkpoint they pass through traps them in a trap again. Admiral Rockwin boards the freighter and has everyone, including Jin, arrested and sent to the glorious Empire's labour camp. So glorious. Glorious. Imperial Detention Centre and Labour Camp, LEG 817, month 05. After Zarada's death, Jin is assigned a new cellmate. Yala is decidedly unfriendly and reminds Jin of Saw. She is disgusted that Jen shows no signs of wanting to escape. Jen watches her, though, and can see plans being made as others of Yala's resistance group are also on Wobani. One night, an hour after work detail starts, Yala's group makes their move. Yala throws an impact hammer to Jen and faces the cell door as it opens, but she barely makes it past the threshold before blaster fire takes her out. Stormtroopers <laughs> enter the cell, and Jen is charged with attempted escape. Look, she was standing still. I don't even think she was standing. I think she was still sitting on the bed with a stunned expression on her face. Yeah, she wasn't doing anything. Leave her alone. But this is the Imperial. The Stormtroopers, they'd be dumb. Yeah, and also she was holding a hammer or something. Yeah. Imperial Detention Center and Labor Camp, LEG 817, month 06. Jin thinks about her mother a lot. The woman who tried to protect her and gave her the kyber crystal around her neck. Her mother expected Jin to live, to never give up hope. Jin starts to look around her, waiting for an opportunity. For once, Jin is assigned farm work. It's backbreaking, but it's outside. As the prison transport bumps along, there is suddenly a different type of lurch, and then the big doors at the end blow off. A group of humans rush in, clearly looking for someone specific, looking for her. Ooh. Where have we seen this before? Mm. <laughs> Jin is taken to the Rebellion. Looking around the base, she's amazed at the hangar filled with X and Y wings, the number of people, and the level of organization. Mon Mothma, exiled senator and presumed leader of the rebellion, is waiting to speak to her. Others are standing beside Mon Mothma. Some faces she recognizes from the holonet, like Bail Organa, and others she does not. They know she is Jen Urso, daughter of Galen Urso, imperial collaborator in weapons development, raised to be a soldier by Saul Guerrera. They need her help. Jen sees hope in the faces of the people around her. This is Jen's opportunity. Ooh. 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 Movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're going to go and watch Rogue One. Yeah. You listen to these messages. See you in about two hours and seven minutes. Yes.
Have you ever wondered what Tina Fey has in common with Jonathan Swift? Or how Star Wars is connected to feudal Japan? Or just how pervasive Shakespeare's influence still is? I'm Rhonda. And I'm Erin. And our show Pop DNA explores the literary and historical roots of your favorite pop culture works. Like the Greek mythology and early 20th century feminism echoed in the film Wonder Woman. Or the classic dystopian fiction and real-life political revolutions that informed the Hunger Games. Every month, we bring you a deep-dive discussion of a selected pop culture work. Featuring jokes no one will think are funny, and literary references no one asked for. Find us at thepopdna.blog. Or anywhere you get your podcasts. By the way, Shakespeare is bigger than Disney. Two hours and seven minutes later... We're back. Oh, it wasn't two hours and seven minutes. What was it, like 30 seconds? Maybe. Oh, man. This was a decidedly different Star Wars book than the saw. I was about to say almost the exact same thing. Which. Which. Seriously, I was almost the exact same words were about to come out of my mouth. I liked this one so much better, too. Not to say anything bad about Ahsoka, but I just love Jen so much more. The writing style is very different. Yeah. I think this is a... It's not a difficult book to read. One of the things I like about it so much is that you do not have to read it as a Star Wars book. You can just read it as a sci-fi book. Yeah. Um... Whereas with Ahsoka, I think you do need to have a little bit more of a Star Wars-y understanding because it's so heavy within the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to be fair, pop culture knowledge is fine with that, with Ahsoka. But it's also a lighter read. You could crack through Ahsoka in a couple of nights easy, where this one might take two or three nights to get yeah, through. Yeah, well, Jen's life sucks. It really does. It really, really does. When she laughs at the warden at the beginning, it's like 100% justified. Yeah. She just can't catch a break. No. No, it's absolutely gutting. It's tragic. Really. It's tragic. It does. And you know, um, after watching Rogue One, it was nice to finally fill that gap. Yeah, because we see her at the very beginning as tiny baby Jin mm-hmm. in the little, in the little hiding space. And then there's a time jump, and this book is the time jump. Yes, yes, and it's it. I've said already. I watched Rogue One last night yeah. in preparation, and you know, time. Is. It's been a little while since um, I've watched it, so I might not remember as many things as you do. Obviously, since you no, watched it yesterday. No, I'm not really going to refer to the movie, to be honest, a lot, other than to say it does fill that slot. I do have a couple of questions, um, and there's a couple of things that the books set straight that I'm like, oh, little a slight disappointments mm. in, um, but it does fill the gap. Like, you know, when Forrest Whitaker plays. Saw Guerrero mm-hmm. in the in the movies, and he's got the breathing apparatus, yeah. and he's missing a leg, and God knows what else he's missing as well. You don't know why, but with this, you do find out. You know when he comes back with his scar, which he has in the movie, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking the breathing apparatus had to be installed after um what happens on Tamsai Prime, 
the way it gets so badly hurt. Mm. But because there's also quite a few years gap in between, it shows you how many missions he must have gone on and how hardcore he is because he's he started throwing himself full force at everything yeah. and getting more radical. Yeah, um, and he's already, you know, banged up yeah. when when we see him at the beginning. And then you see him going on all of these missions and, well, now he's come back with a limp. Oh, and now he just murdered everyone at that ball. <laughs> that, that was devastating. What else? That was absolutely devastating. Yeah. But what else is he doing that we're not seeing? And I'm kind of glad that oh. we're not seeing it because, whoa. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's, the, the thing about the, uh, the Inosagi mission to me, it didn't necessarily prove that Saw is in it to fight the Empire as a, as a resistance fighter. I think he's just in it to he fuck was, shit up. He was in it to be paid. Also be paid. Yeah, he's He's got lost. I mean, he's been fighting since the Claw Wars after his sister mm-hmm. died, was killed. Um, so he's been fighting for 20 years. And it's the only life he knows. Yeah. It sucks. It does. It sucks. But it's. I'm glad though that that gap has been explained. Can I say what I'm? I am disappointed by. Sure. And it, this is not a criticism, but you know how Liara, uh, Jim Jim's mm-hmm. mom, gives her the kyber crystal necklace, mm-hmm. and she gives it to her in the movie. See it in the movie. And all the way through the book, it's kyber crystal. Kyber crystals is the important thing with Galen because obviously we know that kyber crystals are used in the creation of the Death Star, and it's what powers the Death Star and kills all those planets. R.I.P. Alderaan. Um, I was kind of hoping, hoping that Liara had links to not necessarily with the Jedi, but at least to the. To the force. Mm. Because she's so emphatically saying, trust the force. So I'm if you if if you are a force sensitive person and you but you don't use the powers or aren't trained to use them, you eventually lose the power. Mm. It it dissipates. And that's actually explained in the Mandalorian as well with Grogu. If he doesn't use his force powers, he will eventually stop ha- having yeah. them. Um and I was wondering, maybe it's Liara was a former Jedi or just former um, sensitive or had a relationship, familial relationship with somebody who was potentially a Jedi and that's where the kyber crystal came from. It's possible. But no, it's explained in the book, Galen gave it to her. And I mean, that's the thing I'm really gutted by. I'm really devastated. I, I was hoping that that link was going to be there and it wasn't. I was like, ah, oh, nuts and bolts. <laughs> I'm sorry about that for you. It's fine. I will do fanfic in the alternative universe. It's fine. It's fine. I can get over it. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> can I tell you my favorite, just everything about this book, why I like it so much? Go for it. Because literally everyone dies. <laughs> You know how I feel about stuff not having happy endings. 
Yes. I like it. And we know Rogue One it does not have a happy ending. No. And it's just no, it's it just, just appropriate. Her whole life has been building up to what happens at the end of Rogue One and you couldn't have like a happy go lucky book and then move into what happens in Rogue One. It doesn't work that way. No. And I really appreciate Beth Revis for doing that because a lot of books have happy stuff thrown in and good things happen, but not this one. No. It's there's no sunshines, there's no rainbows, there's no cupcakes and glitter and unicorns. Mm-mm. There is it's... glitter. Idrissa is glittery. Yes, okay, well I'll give I'll grant you that. <laughs> She's the only glitter. She's the only glitter in the universe. She really is. She's she is a goddess, a glittery goddess. Um, she did have some happy moments on was it school with Hada? Yeah, but she was never present, like fully present. She never let herself relax and like believe that she was in a safe place because she knows better. And. Akshaya drove me to distraction. She annoyed me. I liked her as a person. I thought she's given Jin a home. Mm-hmm. She's showing Jin family mm-hmm. and compassion, mm-hmm. and she needs that. Yeah. But she was driving me crazy, going, "We're ants. We're ants. The Empire are giants. They'll never look at us." And it's like you have something that the Empire wants. It doesn't matter how little you may have of it in mm-hmm. the grand scheme, but the Empire wants it. And what the Empire wants, the Empire takes. Yeah. They don't care. They will totally, they will rape the planet yeah. to get what they want with no regard for anybody's life. So it, it, I grew very frustrated with her and I can understand that would have put a shadow over the time that Jin had on Skull with Hada and Akshaya as well. It was always this constant worry yeah i do at the same time you're also getting over the fact that saw left you yeah that was rough that was a hard scene to read because it's just like when she was a kid she's hiding in this box again and she's like oh it's okay because saw's gonna come for me and then he didn't Um, I think one of my surprises, actually, if we can skip ahead to that for just a moment, Mm. was the love story. Really? Mm -hmm. Because you just expect everything to be terrible for Jen because, you know, she's got a shitty lot in life. Everything is terrible. And, you know, it was still terrible because (laughs) it was exploded right behind her, but it was beautiful for a few minutes. I had a few minutes. But yeah, yeah, it was surprising to me. Just for that little brief moment in time. You think, oh, mm. things are going to be okay. And then you remember... This is Jen. This is Jen. And <laughs> like, she doesn't have a happy future ahead of her. No. So you can't bring this love with you. You're just going to get exploded at the end. Did you spend the entire time while she was on school um, wondering what horrific event was going to take place? Yeah. Yeah, I, I did as well. What's going to happen? There was, there was, 
what exactly a constant question of well, what's going to happen now how bad's it going to get now constant like when she's on five point station and she's got 100 credits and that's it mm-hmm. and she spends like 20 of them on the first night just on buying some horrific nutri straws mm. and a bed for the night and you're like oh my god just how bad is it going to be and it just gets worse and worse and it's constantly like she's just constantly digging a hole falling in it digging another hole falling in it and it's it, and it's not for a lack of trying it's not for a lack of wanting to do good and it makes me understand and appreciate Jin in the movies where she's like I don't want to fight mm-hmm. I don't want to be part of it because it's not just the empire that's taken things from her the resistance has as well like so she just doesn't want a part of any of it she just leave no. me alone exactly like the empire killed her mother took her father the resistance took her surrogate father you know the soul was lost to, to the violence of the resistance and then literally leaves her on a mission and then the person she you know was in serious case of like and definitely in hormones mm-hmm. with is killed she doesn't know if it's the resistance y wings or the tie fighters that took him out and again a surrogate parent it's just constant and then the empire wants to use her again and again and again and then the slave ship being on the freighter with the slaves and then it's not just the fact that the empire and the resistance it's just people in general yeah, people suck suck i just poor she just has has no no look and you kind of appreciate that when you come to the movies and she goes you know what actually i am going to help you and then when again devastation father's killed in front of her the rebellion or the resistance the, re- the rebellion could were the ones who fired the guns the empire is the one who you know were, were forcing him to be there again it's always the being caught in the mm. middle constantly being caught in the middle and i can you can you can understand why she just wants to walk away you really really can and yeah it's just absolutely i never i didn't think reading this book I would find it so horrifically jarring and upsetting to an extent that this person has can't catch a breath, yeah. can't have a moment of peace and can't find any happiness because as soon as she finds any sort of content, it's gone. Yeah, but this is not a universe where you can't choose a side. It's not. There's not a safe place you can be. You have to you have to make a choice and it takes her a long time to make her choice and everything terrible happens around her while she's sitting there stuck in the middle being ripped literally being ripped apart yeah i i i wonder how much if reese and jari and the other members who were going to the to rear the basement rear didn't find out how jin was in some way important to the empire but they didn't know how like he, he so seemed to genuinely care for Jin. there was a couple of moments where they're kidding about being you know family and 
he is very black she is very white you're clearly not biologically related but the joke about being family and that they're a perfect little family etc and it's it's quite a cute little exchange and so does seem to genuinely care for her though he's not gonna get you know surrogate dad of the year award um but he did a really poor job of disguising who she was like i would stop calling her Jin. i'd be like you're eight, we're going to have to change your name now. You're going to be a Guerrero, but we're going to change your name from Jin as well because yeah. we need to hide you. Yeah. It's important. She's just witnessed the kidnapping of her father and the murder of her mother. I think she's going to agree to that. And if he'd done that, what kind of relationship would they've had? How would Jin's life have been very different? Would she have actually followed in his footsteps? They've been a radical resistance fighter an extremist or do you think she would have gone with Idrissa I have a feeling she would have eventually broken away from Saw eventually and gone with Idrissa but she would still have been a resistance fighter yeah I hope that I hope that she probably or that she would have gone with Idrissa you know after that time with the uh, the the feminine hygiene talk (laughs) thank god and then and then just you know asking you what if what if it had been saw i feel like that's that's like a changing moment you know and she could have just gone with adrissa from there but she didn't no no i also makes me wonder that what was if saw realized he shouldn't be fighting for his dead sister but should be fighting for his living surrogate yeah that probably would have changed some things as well i knew saw was not a nice man he's not a sympathetic character which i quite like actually i I like the fact that he's not a sympathetic character yeah of course um but the inosagi mission was just wrenching it was but that was such a like it was so beautiful you know, yes, before everybody gets ripped apart with tiny metal shards shot out of a cannon, or essentially a cannon, it's uh, that was pretty bad. Yeah, but that would that would have been a very cinematic scene if we had been watching this as a movie. Oh a, yeah, I think it would be a TV series. Yeah, it could be, it really, be really good. good as it a could TV be really series. Good. Slow motion. Blood splatter. Mm. Could have been really good. Close up on Jin's face running away. With like a with like a shard red mist. going right by. Yes. Going by. And all you see is red mist in the background. Yeah. yeah. Could have been really good. That's the the in Inosagi um scenes as well. One of the, it happened throughout the book actually. What the books do really, really well, and I thought especially Beth Revis has done ex- an exceptional job, is actually show how freaking racist the Imperials yeah. are. You don't, you don't. I was talking about this with my husband. You do not get in the movie. You get in the movies an impression that the Imperials are obviously the Nazis. They are. I mean, look at them, the freaking Nazis. Yeah. Um. And therefore, they are going to be racist AF. But you don't see it much because it's just so populated with humanoids. Right. But in the books, 
because you are not limited by budget and special effects, you can have all the alien races galore. And it does a really good job of showing the racism of the Empire. And I think the Inosagi mission especially demonstrates it when the native um, species is denied entrance into the, the, Blue, the Blossom Festival. Thank goodness! Yeah. Because they would be yeah. dead. But Ugh. still. And that's just one example. Who is your favourite character? Liara. Which I know, you know, she, she, she's, she's dead. dead the entire time. She's dead she's the whole time, Claire. In. How could she be your favourite character? Because she's the one parent figure who was positive for Jane. And she's not given enough credit. Yeah. It annoys the life out of me that she wasn't given enough credit. And it wasn't really until the last couple of chapters when we're in um, Wubani and she's like, I'm always thinking about a mum. She's always thinking about a mum who told her to believe in the force, to have hope, to look for opportunities and to live. And it's not until she realises and really thinks about her mum's words that she does actively do that. And if a mum hadn't inspired her in that way, then we would never have had the events in Rogue One. We would never have had the plans for the Death Star. We'd never brought the Death Star down and we wouldn't have been able to bring down the Empire. Liara is a hero who was killed like at this point 20 20 years ago and is forgotten name in history because everybody remembers Gail and Ursula and everybody remembers Saw Gerrera but they don't remember Liara. And she had a bigger positive impact on Jin and the forming of her personality and attitudes than anybody else. But she's not mentioned as much. Yeah. That's so much deeper than my response. <laughs> What's your I mean, I just like Idrissa because she's beautiful and glittery and she helps Jen in small ways and, you know, helps her grow into a woman instead of a dirty little scrub that she would have been with with but Saw. But she takes the role of Liara. She does what Liara would have done yeah. for her and shows her the kindnesses. Yeah. And she again shows her that there's hope in a different way, that there's opportunity in a different way than the violence. Yeah. So she just takes Liara's essence and she expands on that. That's my take on it anyway i might be reading it far too much deeper you know than it's it fine it's to do that i i'm sorry i just went back book. to the conversation the, the woman conversation if saw had had it i just keep going back to that inside my brain and i'm thinking how terrible <laughs> it would be all the time that's what i keep going back to is it saw sex talks yes you can imagine them in like 1980s style video yes. with the synth and the neon yes yeah, that's just that's what I keep thinking of. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm ruining your deep and passionate moments with Saw's sex talk. But it's fine. I have to bring some levity to this. I just imagine him giving her a dirty rag, like it's got oil streaks and stuff on, and going, "Will this do?" Can Can you wipe your areas no. with this? No. no. Oh, she's having really bad cramps, so he brings us some Nutri-Milk. And then that just makes her throw up because she's sick of it. 
She's just thinking, and she just does the hormonal raging. You don't understand me. Ah! <laughs> I need a Mars bar, not Nutri-Milk. Don't give me your dirty <laughs> rag as a pad. Just because they say on the rag, that's not what they mean. <laughs> but really what is happening here, he, he's just standing in the corner. His eyes are wide and he's shaking with terror. He's like, I, can I go on a mission instead of dealing with this hormonal teenage girl? Oh my God. <laughs> just fear. Nothing will bring the fear to a man than a hormonal... Nope menstruating teenager that's it that's what he's most afraid of in his life (laughs) (laughs) okay is that it is it time is that is that where we stop (laughs) we're gonna stop at so so guerrera's sex talk all right i love it (laughs) we're so excited that beth revis is joining us for Yay! would you rather and to talk about this book because everyone knows how much we love her so deal with it it is Yay! <laughs> I will bask in it. <laughs> oh, sending you all the glory. Good for the skin. <laughs> None of the bad UV rays. <laughs> okay, so let's get into this because this is going to be fun. We asked on social media, would you rather be able to forge documents or would you rather be able to pilot a ship to very necessary skills? in the Star Wars universe. And on Facebook, 70% said they were going to forge documents. On Instagram, it was 60% to pilot. 100% pilot on Twitter. And on TikTok, it was 55% pilot. So we've got a little bit of a mix going on. But we do have comments. We do. At Real Jackson Ford, author friend of Fictional Hangover, said, ship. That's not even a serious question. <laughs> there. I mean, I kind of feel that way too. I would absolutely pick piloting a ship. No, I want to forge all the documents. I'm forging everything. There's a limit to how many documents you need, but there's not a limit to how many ships you can drive. That's there's true. not a limit to the amount of credits that you need. But one really good document would solve that. <laughs> And, you know, maybe maybe you move on to forging other things. I mean, that's like what a cosplayer does is forge stuff. So you can, who knows? Who knows what you could forge? No, I want to ship. Fine. I'm going to go full Han Solo. Give me my Millennium Falcon. I want to ship. <laughs> Will you take me places in your ship? Oh, yeah. I'll forge your documents. Per- See, that's all we actually really need. Yeah. Can, can I have the Millennium Falcon, but Lando Calrissian's Millennium Falcon? Oh my god, I, I love Lando. I, love I, I Lando. just want his capes. I need all of capes. his capes. And I, and I would like the cleanliness of Lando's Millennium Falcon as well. I was going to say, that's definitely going to be a cleaner vessel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, man, I love escapes. Okay, um, let's see. <laughs> Other comments. Nina on Facebook said, pilot the ship. I am an excellent driver, but am lousy with minute details needed for forgery. Cool. Annie on Facebook says, I have horrible handwriting. Same, Annie. <laughs> so it'd be nice to have forgery skills. Although you have to think in the Star Wars world, forging is more like computer programming. Right. She's not actually doing anything on paper. It's all digital. That is true. But, you know, the the invitation that she made, I feel like it's very oh, fancy, yeah. which is going to go back to my cosplaying. Like, she has to make this fancy. You see, I would argue as well that everything's digital now. Like, the only things I ever write down are shopping lists and cards, like greeting cards. And mm-hmm. then I try and keep the greeting cards to a very bare minimum. If you get a greeting card off me, I actually do like you. It's a genuine, I actually like you. Otherwise, it's a text. Um, I can I I order the wrong things all the time on the shopping because I just cannot understand my own handwriting. It's abysmal. <laughs> my handwriting is also terrible, but you know I can fake it. I can forge other handwritings. Oh, I have to concentrate. Really, really <laughs> concentrate now. Brie on Facebook wants to forge as well. She says, forgery sounds like a wonderful art project. I can do art. Make me a pilot, anything, and we will crash after getting horribly lost. <laughs> so she's on your side there, Amanda. She she's is. She's going to forge the art. She is. She is. Um, Coral on Facebook says, learning to pilot a ship sounds a little more exciting than writing on paper. I might not have the patience for that. That's fine. That's fine. That's true. And lastly, we have Colin on Facebook says, pilot a ship, please. I'd love to be able to fly. And this is probably the closest I'll get until someone invents me an Iron Man suit. Plus, I'll probably get carried away forging documents and end up drawing a teeny tiny little cock on one of them. And that, in theory, only I know about due to the arc jets of cum and thick, bristly pubes is quite visible to the naked eye. Or, you know, something like that. Not specifically that but more than likely the cock thing. Yeah, I'm going to say he went pretty specific to somebody (laughs) saying not specific. (laughs) I know for a fact that Colin on Facebook once spent about a week tearing tiny little cocks into paper and then stuffing them into a colleague's shoes and bag and drawer, pencil case, just for the lols, because that's what the two of them used to do. Hide cocks everywhere for the other one to find i mean he's on brand <laughs> inconsistent oh, that's a kindness <laughs> yikes that was a lot especially to end with i'm glad we ended with the penises i feel like it's actually circling back to our saw guerrero conversation it is yes it's all let's sexual just health. T- let's just tie it back in right there <laughs> imagine being at school and your substitute teacher comes in and it's the sex ed course and it's Saul Guerrero turns up everything about that no would be he terrible. would just burn that school to the ground he would <laughs> would you rather it was Saul Guerrero before he has to get the the, the um, oxygen um, machine or Saw Gerrera with the oxygen machine. <laughs> Which one would be better? Worse? To give the sex talk. <laughs> I mean, that 
This is a thought That's provoking a hard question. question. <laughs> we asked yeah. the deep questions on fictional hangover. <laughs> That's um I mean he's gonna be grumpy and terrible either way. <laughs> yeah, I d I don't know. I don't know. I think it would be more frightening with with the mask and you know, the heavy breathing. I think it would be worse. Yeah, the heavy breathing's bad, but then the other way might have more direct eye contact, and that is also bad. <laughs> All bad. Either way, it's terrible. Don't ever let Saul have this conversation. It's not it's not okay. He is not meant to do this. Mm -mm, it's no. not okay. No. <laughs> Let's go to the next question that does not have any does not have anything to do with Saw and sex talks. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather eat bun or Nutri-Milk? I mean, definitely bun. Look, I'm not a fan of milk at all. So give me all of the bun. I don't care. I don't want to yeah. drink milk. Whatever kind of and, milk it is. I mean, bun is, is like low-key mochi anyway. Like, that's good stuff. Yeah. Mm. But constantly eating it? I don't know about that. I'm good with that. <laughs> I can fixate on good tasting food. We're fine. <laughs> I just wonder if Hadda hasn't found seasoning. Oh, he definitely has seasoning. He's got seasoning, that's fine. Does he make it sweet and savoury? Because it, it, it seems like a very universal product. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically like a dumpling. Like, you can put whatever you want in it. Mm, that sounds delicious. I feel like Hadda mm -hmm. has skills, too. Oh, he had skills. He, has he had. He had skills. skills. So many skills. He had the talk with Saw. He knows what they do. Sorry. I'm a bad person. I'm not sorry. But then he got exploded. That's, that's my favorite part about the book, P.S., since you weren't in on our discussion earlier. Um, I love that literally everyone dies. I mean, it can't be a happy it ending. It kind of had to happen. Yeah, it can't be happy. Yeah, and I mean, I, I keep having people who will say, like, I'm so shocked that Hatter died. And I'm like, I, I literally named his planet Skull. Yeah. I, I wasn't it's, subtle. It's not subtle <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> have you listened oh. to the audiobook? Um, I've listened to part of it. I, I have a hard time listening to my own audiobooks. We've I think we've had but, this conversation before, I feel like. Yeah. But um Yeah. Rebecca Solaire narrated this one. She did a great job. But she mm -hmm. pronounced it school. And I was just listening to it and so I was like, Wait, she's going to school now? Wait, what? She's going to school? <laughs> and it took me a long time to figure out, oh no, that's the name of the planet and it's probably not spelled like school. It's probably another word, so it's it's definitely skull. Yeah, I like skull. That's a good name for a planet. Yeah, I would choose to live there. <laughs> good luck. Then get into imperial control now. Well, yeah, you know I'm already on that side. I'm a bad guy. I can't help it. Still, that is true. Next question: Would you rather have a dad who created the Death Star or a dad that was an extremist? I mean, I would definitely go for the dad who created the Death Star. You get a I'm, lot of free meals from that. Yeah, and 
I'm just at a point in my life where I'm constantly tired. Having an extremist father means you have to do things. <laughs> and I'm, I don't want to do things. I want to do no things. <laughs> I'll just ride the coattails. <laughs> Give me what I want or I'll get my daddy with his death star to come and beat Clearly. me. I think, I think it's a good plan. I'll just be like, yeah. You know, my dad who invented post-its. I mean, the death star. <laughs> <Fine>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was hoping somebody would get the reference. <laughs> oh, now I want to watch that movie. Okay. Um, of course, your dad's going to be inventing the Death Star. I know that for a fact, Amanda. I mean, come on. There's no question. Yeah. And he wouldn't have done it, you know, kind of by force, kind of by being kidnapped, kind of. Maybe, maybe he that's what he chose. Maybe, no, he would have just like, Here I am, let's build this thing, let's do it, let's blow up planets because I'm evil, and so is my entire family, and that would be okay, and that would be my life. I think I'll quite like you know, take your daughter to work days if he's building the Death Star, that'd be fun. Yeah, well, I mean, she kind of did that, you know, she's building all the panels and then they're exploding. He just didn't know, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, I'm with you guys because again, this is just circling back to that conversation that I'm not allowed to mention again. No, stop it. But you know, if the parent has to have the conversation with you, would you rather be Forrest Whitaker or Mads Mikkelsen? God, I love Mads Mikkelsen so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, Definitely Mads. But I also really like Forrest Whitaker. So... Forrest Whitaker's amazing, but I I don't want the sex talk from him. No. To be fair, I don't want the se- sex talk from Mads if he was my father. <laughs> <laughs> you would like the the demonstration if it wasn't if he wasn't your if father. If there was no relationship. If there was no relationship. It was not yes. extremely inappropriate. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Okay, would you rather join the resistance as a fighter like Saw or a diplomat like Idrissa? I mean, I think I would go Idrissa's path because, again, it it seems easier and I'm tired. And also, like, she's cleaner and has access to baths. <laughs> that, that appeals to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Indoor plumbing. Mm. It's a mm-hmm. And body glitter. It's an important thing. Yes. It's what I need. I declared that I had a non-sexual crush on her when she was introduced because she was so beautiful and sparkly. So that's what I have to go with. Yeah. Yeah. And actual groceries as well. That's a selling point. There was like being a diplomat. You've got groceries, not just Nutri-Milk. True, true. You have a bed, not just a mattress on the floor. Look, that mm-hmm. mattress on the floor, though, was special because everybody else was piled in the bunks. So she had her own room. I don't believe that Jin will have good posture from having a mattress on the floor. <laughs> from AJ. That can't be good for you. It's, you know, My it's back's very, aching just thinking about it's it. It's very stiff. Oh. So, you know, maybe maybe she will have exceptionally good posture because of it. She's no. stiff as a board. No. Mm, sorry I tried I tried to make it better and I failed (laughs) okay plus 
if you're working with a dresser, you might get the chance to meet Mon Mothma and Bill Organa. And if I had the chance to like meet Bill Organa, I'd be like, dude, I would just, you know, I would, I would fangirl because I love Bill. I love Bill. So yeah, any chance for that? Mate. Yeah, I would definitely. It's hard to not think of the character, you know, like the actors that play these characters. You know, if you if you were in this world in real life, you probably wouldn't fangirl Bail Organa. You would, you know, you would look up to him, but I don't know that you would fangirl him. I don't know. I think he's something special. My mum, on the other hand, she has always fancied Jimmy Smith ever since Elia Law. She's like. I remember being knee high and she was like, she'll be watching it and going, oh, that man's fine. I'm like, mummy. Not really understanding. And she's like drooling over this guy. Hi, mum. She listens to this. So she's going to get that. <laughs> yeah. She can drool over him. I'm just going to be like, teach me your ways. He's so smart and diplomatic. And, and if I'm friends with Bill, then I might get to be friends with his daughter. It's true. It's true. It's true. Can you guys imagine, like, the state dinners on Alderaan? That would be pretty nice. Leah would fling peas at the people she doesn't like. Very subtly. You'd never catch her, but she'd do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know for a fact she's got drunk off her dad's alcohol. Many, many times. Of course she has. That Alderanian green wine. <laughs> yep, she sneaks it back to her room with her friends and they're just <laughs> thinking that's being all, all grown up. It's like, Leah, you're a princess. I know! That's it's when she about. started making the hair buns because she's drunk and she's like, what do I got? I got all this hair. What am I going to do with that? And then they all start braiding her hair and putting it up. And, and they're like, Leah, oh my God, you look so gorgeous. <laughs> but it's the drunk kind of gorgeous, it so it's it's just she's slightly smudged, a little bit mm. askew. Well, she did fall for a scoundrel. Yeah. Well, this is where they have the old drawn version of Cosmo, and they do one of those Cosmo quizzes, and it's like, what's your ideal man? And she gets the scoundrel, and she's like, no, I'll be a diplomat or somebody who's going to fight for the resistance. And then, who does she end up with? Those quizzes well, he is at least a general. Anywho. What is our last yeah. question? Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Would you rather forge credits for the Imperial office and, and gambling debt or the documents for a rebellion extremist? I think I would do for the for the extremist. Like at least I'm doing some good. I wanted Solange to get shot in the head by Saul, so we will have resistance. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I have to go with the rebellion on this one too, because like what's the point? They're, you're just gonna keep getting in debt. You're never gonna stop gambling. You're never going to stop, yeah. and so I'm going to be here forever making stuff for you. That's not very exciting. So You, you could see the, the addiction glint in her eye when she realized how good of a forgery that 
Jin could make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, you stay around because I'm going to get even further in debt and I need you to bail me out. Yeah. That's not exciting. No, it's bad crack. Yeah. Good blackmail, though, for later. Oh, yeah, that's true. But do you keep enough records to be able to do that? Did Jin think to keep... I don't recall clearly. Did Jin keep records of being able to do this? To use his blackmail? I will I will put the judicious hammer down and say that she was smart enough to have done it. Even if it's not... It's not in the book. But she was smart. She did it. She did it on the down low. It was unwritten. It was between the lines. It wasn't, you know... If you knew all the nitty gritty, it would have impeded the narrative yes it would have exactly. would have been too much exactly but she definitely would have done she would have kept as many records as she could yeah yeah because you never know when yeah. you're going to need them again well yeah and she was raised by sauce and she's always looking for the other angle right true she's always it's prepared. a shame she couldn't do it for general rockwin admiral rockwin sorry bid <laughs> 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 Oh my gosh. That's the end of Would You Rather. I'm surprised that it only went off on a few tangents. <laughs> no words. No mm. words. Mine's just a high-pitched squeaking noise that really only dogs it can hear. It doesn't even pick up on the recording because it's so high-pitched. Honestly. is the coolest person in the universe. She really is. She's so down-to-earth and so... I don't think she realizes how brilliant she is. No. She really needs to like bask. Yes. <sighs> She's amazing. Okay. Anyway, everyone make sure you go and check out the bonus episode. It's very, very important. So many cool things happen in the bonus episode. Revelations. There are revelations. Yes. Secrets. But now, favorite final thought quote. What do you have? What do you choose? You know, you know, I take pictures when I'm reading a book. I take pictures of the quotes and I come back to them. Yeah, of course. I actually didn't put all of my quotes down that I came up with. There were so many good ones. But I actually deleted about 10 of them. What? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you, you can see the list from our script, how many I I took out. There's just so many. Because oh, no, it's just too many, it's just too many, too much. So I'm not going to give you them all, okay. because we'll be here. We'll be here amount night. of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was one that just kept being repeated, and it's in the movie. It's in Rogue One. It's in Rebel Rising. Mm-hmm. Trust the Force. And yeah, okay, it is the Star Wars Force. It's this mystical, right. magical power. But as I was reading Rebel Rising, and you know, as I was saying before, you know, it, you know, who was saying that the books are really good at showing the racism in the that the Empire has, but the movies don't quite show it quite as much. There was a lot of al- allegory in this book, you know. There always is in the Star Wars world, and the Force doesn't have to be this mystical, magical power that lets you force choke people or throw lightning or move objects the force is whatever you make it to be we don't have that ability no so you need to trust the force and i think in our case it's trust yourself and trust your own abilities and trust the network that's around you and yeah okay 
feeling very deep this week. You are. You're very deep this week. And here I am just going, well, I would force lightning everyone and force choke everyone. And, just and that's how our sex talk by Saul Guerrero, which I'm all for now, actually. Yeah. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry. Fine. I'm Don't be sorry. sorry. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm there with you completely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, next deep meaningful quote, which I think, especially at the moment, giving the current political climate in both the UK and the US, mm-hmm. We can't sit around hoping we're not stomped. We have to do what we can. And that could just be being an ally on social media, standing mm-hmm. up for somebody, social mm-hmm. ju- injustice. Yeah. It could be writing letters to political figures. Um, there's so much of it right now. And there's so much you can do just from your own home. And I think, yeah, we we have to do what we can. We have to do what we can because we are all being, especially women and people of colour and the poor, being repressed. Yes. And like we talked about a little bit in the episode, like you can't just sit back and hope everything goes away. You have to make the decision. Yeah. But seeing all of this, my final favourite thought quote. Uh-huh. You empty-headed moof milker. a good one (laughs) it's a very good place to end there thank you what have you got i mean i guess i kind of picked some serious ones it's a serious book that Jin, Jin experiences very little joy yeah she really does going along with political climate bureaucracy kills freedom yeah and let's see what else did i pick you never know something small and broken really can be powerful i think these are all very very scarily they are appropriate so then finally one fighter with a sharp stick and nothing left to lose can take the day yeah yep yeah and then move milkers move milker empty-headed move milker Use that in the conversation next week. Yeah. See if you can just toss it in. (laughs) (laughs) What? All right. If you liked this, try this. What are you going to suggest? Well, it's going to come as no surprise. Day one pre-order went in. Star Wars, The Princess and the Scoundrel by Beth Revis. I'm so shocked. I'm so (sighs) shocked. You need to lie down. Do you, need, do you need a glass of water with your shock? I might. I might. Yeah. I am so freaking excited so for this excited book. I'm so excited about it. I'm so oh excited. Oh, my God. It's going to be great. It, it's Beth Revis. It can't not be great. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I know only what I've been told about this book. I didn't even read the synopsis. I knew it was a layer and handbook, and I pre-ordered it. I just I had to read it because Beth Revis wrote it. It's due out in August. The cover was revealed. Um, just a few days ago. Yeah, just a couple of days ago for time of recording. So within the last week, yep. it is chef's kiss. Beautiful. beautiful. It's beautiful. Stunning piece of art. And the summary is from Goodreads. The Death Star is destroyed. Darth Vader is dead. The Empire is desolated. But on the forest moon of Endor, squeeze. 
Amongst the chaos of the changing galaxy, time stands t- still for Princess and her scoundrel. After being frozen in carbonite and risking everything for the rebellion, Han is eager to stop living his life for other people. He and Leia have earned their future together a thousand times over. And then he proposes to Leia. It's the first time in a long time he's had a good feeling about this. For Leia, a lifetime of fighting doesn't truly seem over. There is work still to do. Penance to pay for the dark secret she knows runs through her veins. Her brother, Luke, is offering her that chance. One that comes with family and the promise of the Force. But then Han asks her to marry him. Leia finds her answer immediately on her lips. Yes. But happily ever after doesn't come easily. As soon as Han and Leia depart their idyllic ceremony on Endor for their honeymoon, they find themselves on the grandest and most glamorous stage of all, the Heist Leon, a luxury vessel on the very public journey to the most wondrous worlds in the galaxy. Their marriage and the peace and prosperity represents is a lightning rod for everyone in the galaxy, including Imperial remnants still clinging to power. Facing the most desperate hour, the soldiers of the Empire have dispersed across the galaxy, retrenching on isolated worlds vulnerable to their influence. As the Halcyon travels from world to world, one thing becomes abundantly clear. The war is not over, but as danger draws closer, Han and Leia find that they fight their best battles, not alone, but as husband and wife. Mm. What have you got? Well, I mean... You picked that one. Yeah. Which is, I mean, obviously it was going to be the one that I was going to pick because it's Beth Ravis. Hello. So I decided that I would talk about another book by Beth Ravis. <gasps> the Future Collection. Up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a collection of short stories, one of which everyone on Fictional Hangover will know about. The Girl in the Machine. But there are six other stories in here. So I'm going to read what is on the back of the book, which is just a little brief snippet of every story. This is the Future Collection by Beth Revis. Containing the stories, The Doctor-Patient Confidentiality, A Young Woman Wakes Up, In a cryomed ward of a hospital, as she recalls what led to her confinement, she starts to realize just what the consequences of her actions were, and how much time has passed since she was injured. Followed by The Most Precious Memory. In a world where memories can be bought and sold as highly addictive drugs, one transaction takes an unusual turn. I know, every time is going to be, ooh, ooh. It is. <laughs> Story three is The Girl in the Machine, which we are all familiar with. A man has limited abilities to travel through time, but a cute girl pops up in his life, informing him that her time machine can open the door to far greater powers. But there's something ominous about it. Ooh. Next is Blag. A reporter had been chasing down a lead, but after a malfunction in the teleporter she used, she's forgotten what the lead was. Now she's searching for clues in her own life to discover what it was she's missing. (laughs) Next is the Turing test. A college student participates in a Turing test to see if she can distinguish which of the two subjects is human and which is an android. 
Next is malfunction. A young woman signs up for a position as a malfunction watcher on a portal station overseeing the droids and drones terraforming a moon for a colony. The job is scheduled for 10 months. At the start of the fourth month, she finds out that she's pregnant. (gasps) And finally, the last story, I believe, takes place in the Across the Universe world. It's called As They Slip Away. A group of artists on a generation spaceship that reviles art is given a unique assignment, one that draws one young lady far too close to a possessive man protected by the ship's government. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> can't help it. It just know, happens. You can't. They're all so good. No, because they, they all are so, so good. good. Yeah. It's, it's Beth, I mean. Yeah, it's Beth. You can't go wrong with Beth Revis. You really, no, really you can't. can't. No. She's an amazing human being. She really, really is. Oh. <sighs> And if you read her books, tell her you've read the books. Tell her you've read the books. And tell her son that you've read the books. (laughs) She doesn't believe that anyone's read them. No, despite all of the evidence being sent to him. (laughs) Still doesn't believe it. We could be lying. Of course we're lying. We didn't write these summaries. We plucked everything out of thin air. Yeah. Kids, man. Kids. <laughs> Do we have an indie spotlight this week? Can, can we have an indie spotlight with all of its wonderfulness? We do have an indie spotlight. And okay. there's a little bit of a tenuous link. We love a tenuous link at Fictional Hangover. It's a very, sl- just the tiniest tenuous link this time. But I selected Time Travel for Love and Profit by Sarah LaRiviere. She actually sent us the audiobook so we could listen to it. And this one came out a while ago, but like because of the pandemic, it kind of was forgotten. It happened for so many it people. It did, and, and we don't like that. And so we, no. we want to help. And this one sounds like so much fun because it's time travel. Which also ties into The Girl in the Machine. So there's another link. There's another tenuous link, even though we're not talking about The Girl in the Machine today. It's not that tenuous anymore. It's like a six degrees of separation, though, isn't it? It is. It is. All right. So the summary for this one is, when Nathalie has a terrible freshman year, she does the only logical thing for a math prodigy like herself. She invents a time travel app so she can go (laughs) back and do it again and again and again. Fourteen-year-old Nathalie used to have friends. Well, she had a friend. That friend made the adjustment to high school easily, leaving Nathalie behind in the process. And as Nathalie looks ahead, all she can see is three very lonely years. Nathalie is also a whip-smart lover of math and science, so she makes a plan. Step one, invent time travel. Step two, go back in time and have a do-over of ninth grade. Crack the code on making friends and become beloved and popular. Does it work? I can see a paradox. (laughs) (laughs) Natalie does travel through time, but not the way she planned. She's created a time loop, and she's the only one looping. And as she keeps looping... For ten years, always alone. Ugh. Ugh. 
Now, facing ninth grade for the tenth time, Nathalie knows what to expect, or so she thinks. She didn't anticipate that her new teacher would be a boy from her long-ago ninth grade class. Now, a grown man, that she would finally make a new friend after ten years. And... She couldn't have pictured someone like Jazz with his deep violet eyes, goofy magic tricks, and the quietly intense way he sees her. After ten freshman years, she still has a lot more to learn. But now that she's finally figured out how to go back, has she found something worth staying for? Ooh. That sounds like Quantum Leap mixed (laughs) with Groundhog Day. Yeah. But it's teenage girl. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god. Mm. That sounds interesting. I like the sound of that. Yeah. Yeah. So. (sighs) Go and create a paradox, why don't you? I know. This is why the time police would come out and have a word with you. Yes. I love it though. Like, it's the only logical thing for her to do. Create time travel. I love it. it. I love it. It sounds it sounds like so much fun. It does. It does. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Fictional Hangover. I'm Amanda. And I'm Claire. Join us next time for Vampire Book Club as we discuss <laughs> Dead as a Doornail by Charlene Harris. Look out for our Would You Rather polls on social media. Don't forget about our book club and monthly challenges on Facebook. Be sure to visit our shop on Redbubble at fictionalhangover.redbubble.com for all your favorite fictional hangover-themed merchandise and become a patron of ours on Patreon at patreon.com fictionalhangover. Until next time, remember, the only cure for a fictional hangover is another book. You can find us at fictionalhangover.com, follow us on Instagram at fictionalhangover, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fictionalhangover, and on Twitter at fictionalhangover, no E-R. If you'd like this episode, check out our others, a rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss out. And finally, special thanks to Liz Emerson for our music. You can find her on Facebook and Patreon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>